Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will talk about the rapid unraveling the Ummah experienced as Umayyad power crumbled after the death of Yazid ibn Muawiyah. Fair warning, listeners, there will be some significant complications ahead. The Ummah's path to unity will be long and contorted. We'll have to meet a lot of new people to tell this story, and the tribal coalitions we've mentioned briefly so far will begin to play an active role. In short, it's about to get messy, starting with episode 22, The Second Fitna. the term fitna didn't sneak up on you. For anyone just tuning in now, it's the Arabic word for civil strife. Not every intrigue, coup, or rebellion warranted the label, and the Arabs reserved it only for those exceptional periods of cataclysmic upheaval. If you found the first fitna to be a crowded and confused affair, then I need to do a much better job with this one, as it will be remarkably more complex. I won't try to fit it all into one episode. In fact, we've already covered some of it. When it started is a matter of opinion, and some say the fitna truly kicked off once Abdullah ibn Zubayr began publicly accepting pledges, others that it was after Hussein and the Hashemites were massacred en route to Kufa, and others still pin its start all the way back with Muawiyah's death. I don't know how fair that last one is. I mean, despite his disastrous time at the helm, Muawiyah's son and successor Yazid did rule for a few years, replacing governors and sending armies and whatnot. His poor decision-making undoubtedly played a huge role in the deterioration of the Ummah's unity, but it wasn't until his sudden death that everything fell apart. So we'll use that milestone to investigate the second fitna. In our effort to keep our stories straight, we will break up our discussion into three parts, one for each of the Caliphate's main regions, Iraq, Syria, and the peninsula, using their local leaders as our vantage points while we await the rise of a new Caliph. Let's start with the peninsula, specifically the western Hejazi cities of Mecca and Medina. When news of Yazid's death arrived, Medina had already been conquered and pillaged, and Mecca had been under siege for about four months and getting desperate. Abdullah ibn Zubayr may have been unflinching in his resistance, but he was also ineffectual and had found no real way of fighting off his besiegers. When news of the Caliph's death arrived, Yazid's armies were stunned and the commander in charge decided to stop the unpopular siege of the holy city and called for a meeting with Ibn Zubayr. We are told he made Ibn Zubayr an incredible offer. In exchange for a promise to return with them to Damascus, he was willing to pledge allegiance and have him recognized as caliph. Let's take a step back. If you recall, Abdullah ibn Zubayr's whole platform was to fight the Umayyads until the Qurayshi nobility could hold an election council to determine which clan chief would become the next caliph. This united Quraysh and their loyalists behind his war effort, and he bolstered this support by appealing to the Karajites, with promises to include their leaders in the discussions as well. The thing is, the Qurayshi elders who stood the best chance at rivaling his own bid for power had all died during the siege, and coupled with the respect his resolute stand against the Syrians had won him, 
Ibn Zubayr had become the de facto leader of all opposition on the peninsula. As for the offer by the Syrian commander, I totally see where you're coming from if you're skeptical. How often does an army hear its sovereign had passed away back home only to turn to its target and offer him the throne? To be fair though, the Ummah was going through a grave crisis, and from the front lines in Mecca it must have seemed clear that there were only two possible caliphs, one of whom had just died. In this light, asking Ibn Zubayr to return with him to Damascus seems like a reasonable request. It would give the Syrian tribes the opportunity to pledge to and build ties with the new caliph in person, and as a bonus ensure that the commander who made it all happen would remain in the new caliph's good graces. Ibn Zubayr turned down the offer, basically telling the commander that his only options were to either pledge his allegiance unconditionally or dismiss himself. The Syrian commander chose the latter and marched his army back to Damascus. The fact that the defenders of Mecca couldn't defeat their besiegers even after this upset underlines just how mismatched the two forces were. Ibn Zubayr was riding pretty high after this. He not only proclaimed himself caliph, but also started handing out governorships and otherwise taking care of business. His unilateral decisions to name himself caliph did not lose him any Qurayshi allies, but it did anger the Karajites, who abandoned him in mass and became as opposed to him as they had been to previous caliphs, all of whom they viewed as illegitimate. The Karajites were not united in any real sense, and by this point we are told there were four distinct blocks of the movement, each with its own leader or set of leaders. They dominated the eastern half of the peninsula and the south and east of Iraq. Apart from the Umayyads, the only Qurayshi clan to withhold their support from Ibn Zubayr were the Hashemites, and in response he had them besieged in Mecca for a while. If you're wondering why Ibn Zubayr was obsessed with getting the support of such a weak and broken clan, then you must have forgotten about the considerable sway the Hashemite name held in Iraq, where we will head to next on our tour of the second fitna. When Yazid passed away in late 683, Ubaidullah bin Ziyad ruled over the two Iraqi cities from Basra. Since he and his four younger brothers had all held various positions of command in the eastern half of the caliphate, he had grown quite confident of his authority over a very sizable and profitable chunk of land. It seems that he began suffering from illusions of grandeur after hearing of Yazid's death, thinking that maybe this was his time to shine. Ubaidullah was technically an Umayyad, but only technically, as his father's adoption hadn't truly been accepted by the clan beyond Muawiyah, but at least it was enough to go on to claim descent from Quraysh. When Ubaidullah heard about Yazid's teenage son being made caliph in faraway Damascus a month or so later, he didn't exactly rush to collect pledges of allegiance for the boy. Instead, he held a large gathering for the tribes of Basra, and in a speech to them he stressed his deep ties to the city, how he'd grown up there and was always hard at work building upon his father's legacy of improving it further. Trying to be slick about it, he said that the city had grown so prosperous that with the power vacuum in Damascus, Basra's chiefs had a chance to lead the Ummah if they could only unite behind a single man. Nothing was lost on the elders in attendance, and they quickly put on an enthusiastic show for the governor, pledging to him right then and there. Some narrations even say that Ubaidullah did his own little theatrical bit by refusing their pledges three times before finally accepting the responsibility. Within days, however, 
the Basran tribes realized that the paralysis in Damascus meant that Ubaidullah couldn't count on its armies for support and that he could no longer threaten them with reprisals. Just like that, they abandoned him entirely. And since there were plenty of Iraqis who held him directly responsible for the shameful massacre of the Hashemites, he was a wanted man who couldn't get out of there fast enough. Literally, many narrations insist he left behind his wife and child and sought protection with a tribe he was on friendly terms with. He convinced his ally to try to gather some more supporters to get him reinstated by rallying tribes who were part of his larger confederation. This wasn't either of the two main Arab-Syrian ancestral coalitions we've been talking about. It was altogether different. You don't need to remember the following story, as this tribal conflict will eventually get subsumed into that larger Syrian one, but I thought I'd briefly describe it to give you another example of what these coalitions could be like. Tamim was the largest tribe in all Arabia, which of course meant it had many different branches and clans that didn't always get along, but still the oral histories attest that it was united in some sense, one saying weird things like, if it wasn't for Islam, Tamim would have swallowed the desert. Rabi'a was another super clan, not as huge as Tamim, but still relatively large. Like all tribes, these were named after celebrated ancestors, real or imagined. While the two generally roamed different areas, there was considerable overlap between their territories, especially around Basra. During Ziyad's governorship of Iraq, the tribes living around Oman, to the southeast of the Arabian Peninsula, migrated to the prospering Canton towns. The Omani tribes moved under a single coalition known as the Ezd, who like Tamim and Rabia, was a shared ancestor for a large number of tribes who considered themselves related. When they arrived in Basra, they allied with Rabia, some narrations saying that the two had been closely related, while others that the Ezd had some distant cousins already married into Rabia. Whatever it was, it was all very tribal and leaned heavily on the ancestral image the Arabs held of themselves. This alliance between two large tribes put the Tamim on edge, and tensions between the two began bubbling into clashes every now and again. So when Ubaidullah's friend went up the pulpit at a local mosque and called upon those who supported the Rabi'a Ezd alliance to stand and support his cause, some members of Tamim straight up killed him for trying to rally their rivals, and that was that. Ubaidullah realized he had no other move in Iraq, and he decided to continue his escape onto Syria, which takes us to our third and final stop. Yazid's death in November 683 upended everything Umayyad authority had been built upon. He had been chosen to succeed his father precisely because he was a direct descendant of the chief of Kelb's daughter, Maysun. This all weighed very heavily on the mind of Ibn Bahdal, Yazid's cousin, governor of Palestine and Jordan, and latest chief of the Kelb. He was preoccupied with maintaining the privileges he and his clan were afforded, and when you're at the top, any amount of change is unwelcome. The nomination of Yazid's eldest son, the 19-year-old Muawiyah, for caliph was an attempt at extending this alliance, but it was obviously not taken very seriously outside Syria. When Muawiyah died between two and six months into his short reign, there were literally no other suitable candidates. Ibn Bahdal hoped to nominate Muawiyah's younger brother Khalid, but at that stage it was like flogging a dead horse. Umayyad loyalists and supporters were fine when Yazid was put in charge, but they became unnerved by just how much control the Syrian Kelb had after they managed to install the younger Muawiyah in charge of the Caliphate. 
two prominent members of the Umayyad Old Guard, the governors of Damascus and Homs no less, defected to Ibn Zubayr's cause, declaring that since there were no other candidates for caliph, to disobey would be to cause disunity, and they called upon their people to offer their pledges of allegiance. In this stunning about-face, they were joined by the Adnani armies of Qinsarin and Jazira or Mesopotamia, who also greatly resented the influence the Qahtanis held over political affairs. Back when Muawiyah was in charge, he managed to keep both tribal coalitions in his service, giving each one room to dominate its immediate environment. Ziyad proved less adept than his father at maintaining this delicate balance, especially after it was upset by the boost in standing the Kelp and their Qahtani allies received with his ascension to Caliph. Maybe he would have managed to turn things around had he lived long enough, but the relationship with the Adnani tribes of northern Syria was compromised beyond any hope of repair after the rushed promotion of his son by their rivals. The stranglehold that the Kelb held over political decisions begs the question, who founded the Umayyad dynasty? Instead of regarding Muawiyah as the brilliant governor who managed to use his many advantages to assert his authority over the Ummah, maybe it is more apt to recognize that he had no real say in who was going to succeed him. Having tied his fate to the Kelb so tightly, he had become entirely beholden to them. It's just a thought and I do not want to spend too much time laying out yet another way we can look at Muawiyah. He's controversial enough as it is. In any case, it's not like their monopoly over the highest rungs of power had done the Kelp or their Qahtani allies any favors following Yazid's death. Their championing of the younger Muawiyah as his successor was a desperate gambit, and the clumsy move revealed just how bankrupt they were. After his death only months later, the best their leader Ibn Bahdar could come up with was nominating Muawiyah's little brother Khalid as his successor. But governors all around the Caliphate, even in Syria, just began taking pledges for Ibn Zubayr. Having exhausted all his options, Ibn Bahdar withdrew back to his tribe's ancestral lands of Palestine and Jordan. He couldn't remain in the capital Damascus, as its governor, one of the elder Muawiyah's closest lieutenants, had defected to Ibn Zubayr's camp. The Meccan Caliph had technically united the rest of the Caliphate under him as he was the only Qurayshi candidate and governors were calling their people to pledge to him. Not everyone had pledged, of course, and all sorts of elements existed in society. There were Karajites, resentful Umayyad loyalists, tribes whose elders had not met the new Caliph and were too proud to submit without formalizing the relationship with a wedding or two, but it seemed like it was just a matter of time before they came around one way or another. Unwilling to give up just yet, Ibn Bahdal decided to hold a tribal gathering to try and determine whether any paths to power had been overlooked. Allied tribal leaders and Umayyads of all stripes were invited to Jabiyah in the south of Syria in early to mid-684. This was the scene which greeted Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad when he first appeared in Syria, and after getting over the shock of Muawiyah's death and calls for pledges for Ibn Zubayr in Damascus, he decided to head to Jabiya to see what was going on. Yazid's family all attended, of course, as they were also Ibn Bahdal's kin, and he was still trying to push for Khalid bin Yazid to be proclaimed caliph. Marwan and his family had made their way to Damascus after being expelled from Medina, but after Yazid's sudden death, Muawiyah was leading them back to Mecca to pledge allegiance to Ibn Zubayr, 
and many narrations report that he had to be talked into attending because he didn't think anything could come out of the meeting. Sa'id ibn al-As, Medina's other governor during Muawiyah's reign, had passed away a short while back, but his son al-Ashtaq, a prominent and popular Umayyad in his own right, was there representing his branch of the family. We are told that the Umayyad and Qahtani elders met over several nights, but their deliberations are not transmitted in any reliable retellings. One quote which consistently emerges is the rejection of Ibn Bahd al-Faist pushing for Khalid ibn al-Yazid, with other leaders saying that they hated supporting a youth to counter a rival elder. Clearly, the whole Muawiyah II fiasco still stung. Ultimately, they agreed to all back Marwan for Caliph, whose age, standing, and tribal connections were expected to give them their best chances for success. He was meant as a kind of regent, however, as it was also decided that Khalid ibn Yazid was to be his successor, and considering Marwan's age, 61 at the time, Ibn Bahdal must have figured that his kin would be back in charge before too long. Al-Ashtaq, who was not as old as Marwan but substantially more mature than Khalid, was third in line. It was a messy arrangement, but one that balanced the competing interests within and without the Umayyad clan and ensured that the Qahtani alliance had no shortage of Qurayshi men to champion for Caliph. The alliance agreed to more than just which members of Quraysh would represent their interests at this meeting. They decided that they had to retake their capital if they wanted any chance at regaining power. This wasn't going to be a sneak attack either. Their meeting at Jabiyah hadn't gone unnoticed, and it had provoked their Adnani rivals to rally around the governor of Damascus to encourage him to take military action against them. As soon as Marwan's intentions to challenge Ibn Zubayr were known, confrontation became inevitable. The Umayyads and their allies were going to go all in, so the governor of Damascus marshaled as many troops as possible, receiving much support from the Adnani tribes and the armies of Homs. The battle between these two factions took place in late July to mid-August of 684 at a plain called Marj Rahit. Sources agree that the Umayyads were badly outnumbered, but estimates are erratic. The Umayyad slash Qahtani army is sized at between 6 and 15,000, up against 30 to 60,000 men from the armies of Damascus, Homs, and the Adnani tribes. Despite how little we can confirm about the battle itself, we know it was a bloody affair and that a large number of Umayyads died trying to preserve their clan's primacy in the Ummah. After dozens of brutal engagement over 20 days or so, the Umayyads emerged victorious. Some narrations explain this unexpected thrashing by saying that as the Umayyad advance gathered momentum, more tribes switched sides, which seems like a sensible explanation to me. Others say that the governor of Damascus had left the city undefended because he thought his advantage was so overwhelming that the battle would be over in no time. So when an Umayyad ally attacked the city, they had an easy time taking it over, something which disrupted the governor's operations decisively. The Umayyad revolt really got going after the governor of Damascus died towards the end of the battle of Marjurahit. The Qahtanis overran Syria so rapidly after their victory that when the governor of Homs, a hundred miles to the north, heard about it, he was chased down and killed even as he tried to escape. The only governor to survive this terrible rout was Zufar, leader of the Adnani tribes of northern Syria, 
who governed Qinsarin even further north than Homs. He withdrew all his tribesmen and their allies and occupied an old Roman fortress town to the east called Qarqasia. It had strong defenses and occupied an important strategic location, separating Syria and Iraq at the confluence of two Mesopotamian tributaries to the Euphrates. From this fortified location, he launched multiple attacks on Qahtani tribes, starting a generations-long chain of feuds with a set of raids dubbed the Ayyam, Arabic for the days, as each raid was a day-long affair. Since these raids were culturally significant to the Arabs, we find a lot of poetry claimed to have been written then, shaming some tribe or celebrating some glory. The Battle of Marj Rahit led to some key changes in the Caliphate. Marwan was declared Caliph in Damascus, and most of Syria pledged pretty quickly, hinting at how little enthusiasm there had been for Ibn Zubayr in this Umayyad stronghold. Marwan's clan from now on would have to rely entirely on the Qahtani alliance that fought to put them back in the driver's seat, which meant that he could expect plenty of resistance from their rivals in the north of Syria. The Adnanis, now concentrated in Qarqasia, declared for Ibn Zubayr, though it's clear that their leader Zufar remained firmly in control, and his pledge was only intended to put more pressure on his Qahtani foes. The Umayyads did not rest on their laurels after this surprise triumph in Syria. Marwan is credited with rallying armies from the tribes that supported him and leading them to Egypt. His quick attack caught the governor of Fustat off guard, and we're not told much about the battle, but most narrations say it was a quick win for the Qahtanis. Having been ruled by Umayyad loyalists for almost as long as Syria, the province wasted little time switching back to the clan's side. Marwan appointed one of his sons as Egypt's new governor, and he made his way back to Damascus, just in time to learn that Ibn Zubayr had sent an army under the leadership of his brother Mus'ab to Palestine. Al-Ashnaq was tasked with leading the defense, and after a severe battle he managed to fend off the fierce Mus'ab, who is praised even in pro-Umayyad accounts for being an old-school Arab leader. His victory brought Al-Ashdaq lots of glory, and it happened in early 685. So in just six months, the 62-year-old Marwan had managed to retake most of Syria and Egypt and rebuff an attack led by one of Ibn Zubayr's most fearsome leaders. It's not like everything he did was successful, and an army he sent to attack the Hejaz was decimated without doing any damage to Ibn Zubayr's forces. But still, Marwan had made some great progress, especially considering how desperate the situation seemed when his rebellion first began. He's been with us for a while now, so Marwan's craftiness shouldn't surprise you, and neither should his ambition. He was definitely aiming higher than just restoring a caliphate to bequeath to the young Khalid when the time came. As part of the agreement at Jabia, Marwan had wed Yazid's widow, which made him Khalid's stepfather. While this was meant to bind the families together and make the eventual transition of power smoother, Marwan used his new position to belittle the young man publicly. Just like with the Hashemite al-Hassan bin Ali back in Medina, this tactic was meant to make it difficult for the target to maintain the kind of public respect or standing required to become a serious contender for Caliph. After al-Ashtaq's glorious victory against Mus'ab in defense of Palestine, Marwan began worrying about him as well. One narration says that al-Ashtaq himself asked to be named next in line after this victory, 
with another saying that Ibn Bahtal voluntarily pledged his allegiance to him after it. So while we can't be sure about the truth, we can tell that the victory itself was a huge deal. We're told Marwan invited Ibn Bahtal to Damascus and got him to pledge allegiance to his two eldest sons, Abdul Malik and Abdul Aziz, as his successors. Some say he got his way through threats, others through promises, but there's no agreement on most of these eventful years anyway. I think what makes the most sense is that after witnessing all the recent twists and turns, Ibn Bahdal just craved stability. If Marwan impressed his unwillingness to pass the baton to anyone else upon Ibn Bahdal, then it makes sense that he'd agree to go along with Marwan's choices. Marwan's sons were no slouches either, both having already displayed impressive capacities for leadership and governance. One day, not too long after getting Ibn Bahdal on board with his succession plans, Marwan humiliated his stepson Khalid at his court by shaming him in vulgar terms in front of everyone, with stuff like smutty jokes about how big his mom's ass was. Frustrated at his inability to do anything about it, Khalid complained to his mother, blaming her for putting them in this situation by marrying such a man. His mother realized what Marwan was trying to do, and she advised her son to show no anger and to leave the matter to her. The next time the caliph came to chill with her, she had her harem pinned down the old man's arms and legs, and she sat on his face until he suffocated to death. While it's my favorite narration about Marwan's death, and it is widely reported, I promise, I admit that it's also unlikely. Marwan probably died of something less dramatic, some quick illness or old age or something. It's a real pity, and I always hate to admit it, but women are mostly mentioned in the oral narrations as foils to shame or humiliate men so the important contributions they made to this history are kept from us entirely. The sources amplify narrations against Marwan because he resurrected the Umayyad dynasty after the rest of the Ummah had almost united behind Ibn Zubayr, something which represented a reversion to its pre-dynastic phase. Abdul Medik wasted no time collecting pledges after his father's death, and he faced no serious opposition from Khalid or Al-Ashtaq, showing just how successful Marwan had been at sidelining his son's competition. Let's wrap it up here. The second fitna will take much longer to get through, and I think we've done enough to introduce its major parties for now. We still have a lot to say about Iraq, however, and with its mix of Hashemite, Karajite, and Zubayrid loyalties, overlaid by ethnic tensions unique to the region, it will take us a whole episode to describe. We're lucky to have a fascinating figure to use as a vantage point into that world, a man whose strange rise to power will foreshadow some critical developments. But let's get to all that next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. Mm-hmm.